series on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah. That this week, next week, and then we will have a topper after that. The um, interesting statistics we uh, are going to be discussing what is frequently called the Great Commission. I have a problem with calling it that because in, in our current culture and time, when you think of commission, you kind of think of like commissioned officers that you have been given some type of authority to order people around and to do things. I don't see that this is that. If, if you took take a look at the commission in the sense of the other meaning of a duty or an obligation, then I wholly agree with that. This is, and I'll tell you why I disagree with the commission part if it's a grant of authority. There is a statistic that says that only 51% of Christians even know what the Great Commission is. Now, we are, as Baptist evangelicals, and that means we believe both in the sense of you must be born again and that we are to evangelize. And so I would think, hopefully, that that statistic is low for we Baptists. Um, but it is, although... There is also a statistic that says that 67% of statistics are made up. So you got that. So at least uh, you're paying attention thus far. And so when we go through these things, when someone is about ready to depart, and Jesus is phasing, there's just going to be one more time recorded in the scriptures where Jesus is going to have uh, contact with his disciples. So when he tells you something towards the end of that time, then you pay attention. And so that's where we are here in Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 16. It says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And so if you remember all the way back when the resurrection took place, and the women were there, uh, and they discovered the empty tomb. The angels had told them, he's not here, he's risen. Remember he said that? He's going to meet you in Galilee, as he told you, so go meet him in Galilee. And so they had gone to Galilee, went fishing, he met by the lake, and now they're meeting at the designated spot in a mountain. We don't know which mountain that is. Jesus frequently would teach in a mountain setting, even uh, performed a miracle of feeding 4,000 uh, in that uh, mountain setting. I kind of think and hope that the mountain designated here is the one where the transfiguration took place, but we're not told, so that's just speculation on my part. But he had designated ahead of time, this is where we're going to meet. And so Jesus had designated that, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now, I want you to see the second part first. It says some were doubtful. The theologians and the commentators will argue back and forth as to, are we talking about the leaven, or are we talking about others that were there? And some were saying it's just 11, others saying no. And so they kind of fight back and forth. It seems to me that 
Jesus has appeared to the 11 on multiple occasions. So it would seem to me that they weren't at this time doubtful. So it's possible that they're talking about other disciples, which although causes me to think, well, why would you show up in a mountain if you didn't think it was him? If you were that doubtful about it being him, then why would you go to that effort? What I tend to think, and again, I tend to think, is unfortunately, a lot of the scriptures will kind of give it in the present tense, in the sense of, as Jesus was going and things like that, to, to give it a sense of, of action. And Mark was especially good at Jesus would move here, Jesus would move there, and they would phrase it in such a way as even though it was in the past, they kind of phrased it in the current. So what I'm thinking here is that the 11, at least, had been doubtful. They were, past tense, doubtful. That they are not presently doubtful. But I'm not great at the Greek, so I'll let the theologians argue back and forth but that's kind of my sense of it is that we're not told whether it's a past tense or past tense because the events took place but but again they had been doubtful as the way I would look at it but the beginning of it says when they saw him they worshiped him notice that when they were with him prior to the resurrection, they viewed him as a good teacher and even one sent by God and one even the son of God. He was their teacher. He was more than a good buddy, but he was one of them. But after the resurrection, they understood that he is the son of God. And that he did more than just be their teacher or their rabbi. That he was entitled to be worshipped. And so they worshipped him. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is why I don't like the term commission when it's sense that I'm granting you some ability because Jesus says all authority has been given to me. So the father has given Jesus all authority, which means without exception, he has it all. He has the authority in heaven and he has in the authority on earth. I don't see anywhere where he says, and I'm giving you some, I have it all. Now do this. And so Jesus says, I have the authority to tell you what to do, not only because I'm your Lord, but because all authority, whether it's in heaven or on earth, has been given to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So therefore, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to go back. Oftentimes when you hear in the past, especially 
um, during the, uh, especially in Baptist settings and some of the more evangelical, the emphasis seemed to be on go. You're supposed to be a missionary. You're supposed to go. It's this, and so the emphasis was always on the going and not on the rest. And then you'll see others who will say, well, it's the, the correct translation is not go, but as you are going, do these things. I think both are appropriate because in the sense of they are on a mountaintop hearing Jesus speak. And Jesus is telling them, this is not the place to hang out. So go. And I'm going to give you your marching orders. So he says, go therefore. And so this is the real command. And make disciples. I'm going to stop there. Evangelicals especially. We'll read that, preach that, but they don't mean disciples. They mean converts. Go make converts. Why do I think that? Because there are so many people who are so interested in quote-unquote evangelism that all they care about is notching their Bible. How many people got saved? And they keep the records of how many people got saved. And not how many became disciples. And so they were making converts. And we were so concerned about making converts that we watered down the gospel. How did we water down the gospel? Because we would, if you would hear in the various evangelistic crusades or even people in, in churches or even individuals would say, well, just pray that Jesus is your savior. The scriptures do not teach that the way to be saved is to seek Jesus as Savior. You're to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, not Savior, Lord, my boss, the one who tells me what to do because he has all authority. Therefore, I do what he says. And so we are so concerned about cheapening because we want to notch our Bibles and say, well, we had this great crusade and thousands of people came to know the Lord because they said the sinner's prayer, which was cheapened. Jesus didn't say, go make converts. If that were the case, there is a whole religion that will make converts by the point of a sword. Convert to this religion or die. Jesus isn't interested in converts. He's interested in disciples, followers of him, imitators, not in the incorrect way, but in the proper way of being like Jesus. So we are to make disciples. We are to make them like Jesus. We're not to seek converts. Now, there were some, uh, Billy Graham and his crusades would often try to but uh, even in Billy Graham's situation, they made the effort, which is better than most. But the problem was there was no real follow-up. And so there would be the sense of the statement, well, go join a local church. But there was never a list of Bible-believing churches that they ought to go check out. 
It would just go. And hopefully maybe one of the counselors who prayed with the people would be in a church that they might come to. But there wasn't that sense of now that you become a believer, you need to follow the next step. You need to, we'll say, be baptized. You need to, to learn of him. You need to do these things. But it's, we were so ecstatic with the fact that we made a convert that we forgot to make disciples. This is going to be an inappropriate analogy for some of you, but that's who I am. Making babies is fun. There's no commitment in making a baby. You can enjoy it. Raising a child takes commitment. Takes effort. You don't get to say, well, you know, I brought you into the world. Now you're on your own. I'm out of here. As a parent, you raise that child to hopefully become a quote-unquote responsible adult. And so you spend not just the few moments it took to make a baby, but you take decades to teach them, to train them, to love them, to nurture them, to, if you will, disciple them as a member of your family. Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to make converts. I'm not asking you to make baby Christians. I'm asking you to go from unbelief to a follower of me who knows me and follows me. It takes a commitment. It's more than just having a revival. It means once the person comes to faith that you are there day after day after day when they're great and when they're problems and you deal with it just like you would children. So we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, which I'm sure was a little bit of a head scratcher for them because they kept asking, well, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And your kingdom in their idea wasn't the heavenly kingdom. It was Israel and getting the Romans off their backs. Jesus saying, this is not an effort for Israel only. I want you to go to all nations without exception. Even the ones you don't like, even the Romans. And they had a prophet who was kind of in that vein. Jonah was given a task to do, to preach, if you will, the gospel to Nineveh. And he hated the Ninevites. So he decided to take off on his own. Because he knew our God was a God who was merciful and forgiving and compassionate. He knew that if he preached, that God would forgive them. But figure, I'm not going. And so even here, Jesus is saying, I don't care whether you like the nation or don't like the nation. You go to all nations. Everybody wants to go to Africa. It also includes... China and Russia, Belosaurus, Iran, all these places, even those that we politically are not in agreement with. We are to go to all nations. And what we are to do, baptizing them, 
I'm going to stop there. If we are to go in the initial process of baptizing them, it means that we're supposed to be baptized. So in essence, Jesus is saying, before you start, you need to be doing what you are preaching others to do. And baptism isn't for salvation. Baptism is a public confession that Jesus is Lord of your life that he died and rose again, according to the scriptures. And that is the initial commitment of faith. So the beginning of discipleship is baptism. So you start off by baptizing them. And then notice how we're to baptize them. It says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice it didn't say in the names. In the name, singular. Because God the Father loved you, so he sent Jesus, who died for you because he was obedient even to the death of the cross. And his death caused us, our sins to be forgiven, and his resurrection caused us to be saved. And the Holy Spirit, that is not only that who draws us to faith, is the one who helps us. And the one who resides in us, that we might have the fruit of the Spirit, so that we might be loved and patient, and kind, and gentle, and all of those other things that the fruit of the Spirit develops in us. It is not the names, it is the name, because the Lord our God is one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we baptize, we are acknowledging that it took the triune God to save us. You couldn't have... Salvation with one without the other. Because it is God the Father who loved us, God the Son who gave his life, and God the Holy Spirit who drawed us to him and causes us to be born again. So we baptize in that name. Because there's no other name under heaven which a man might be saved, but in the name of Jesus. So he tells us that we are the initial starting of this making of disciples is to baptize teaching them to observe teaching them teaching them teaching them it is not their obligation alone to learn it is your duty to teach them We all too often try to place the responsibility of learning on the individual rather than saying that it is our obligation to teach. There was a a, a story I read many years ago of a, a professor in a, I believe he was in a Southern Baptist seminary. His name was Hendrickson. Or Hendricks. And he really took his obligation to teach seriously. So one of his students was the one who the book I was reading decided he would do an experiment. So he said as he was the professor was teaching, 
he started looking out the window. And so he said, I noticed that the professor started talking louder. He says, I just kept looking out the window. And then the teacher, the professor started moving around more. Because I continued to look out the window. Then he said, finally, the professor came and stood between me and the window. So I couldn't look out so that he, I would pay attention to what he was saying. You see, that professor took it as his obligation to teach, not for the student to learn. Now, the student does have an obligation to learn, but the teacher has an obligation to teach, and we have an obligation to teach. And what is it that we have an obligation to teach? Them to observe all. Not the finer points, not the easy points, but all that he's commanded. So let's talk about the easy ones that are the hard ones. He has taught us by command that we are to love one another as he has loved us. That's easy to teach, much harder to do. And it's not one of the things that, well, you know, I told you back in 1947 that you're supposed to love one another. It's something that we do over and over and over because, you know, even those of us who have been crucified with him keep seeming to be resurrected. So that's why we need to take our cross daily. And he teaches us to be forgiving. And he taught us that if we want to be forgiven, that we need to forgive. And even in the teaching of how to pray, he says, Lord, uh, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he's taught us all kinds of stuff about the guy who had a lot of fortune forgiven him. And he could barely and would refuse to, to forgive that one who had only been forgiven a little. Those are the things we are to teach. The easy things that are hard and the hard things that are easy and all of those. We are to teach it all. Which means we're to know it all. Not to be know-it-alls, but to know it all. To know what Jesus taught. That's why you know, a few weeks ago, uh, I used to complain and say, the problem with the, what would Jesus do is that that's number one, assuming that Jesus didn't do it. And so we, we go, well, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? Well, Jesus faced all the circumstances we will ever face. So the question is not what Jesus would do. What did Jesus do? And we shouldn't have to wonder that because we know what he did because we knew what he taught and we knew what he did. And therefore we then apply that to our lives and teach others. Part of the reason why there's so many denominations, denominations like to, to emphasize one thing versus another. And it's funny how we can get into arguments over things. Um, I, I won't say the denomination. As soon as I talk about what it is, you'll know. Uh, there's one denomination that won't use instruments. Because they never talk about instruments in the New Testament which is kind of funny in my fun because in the Old Testament, it talks about, especially in the Psalms, about a harp and a lyre and a 
high-sounding symbols and the resounding symbols. It talks all kinds of different string instruments and lutes. People say, well, we're a New Testament church. Well, the New Testament is only New Testament because it tells us about the Old Testament. We are a, hopefully, a Bible-believing church, not a... But we partition things because it fits whatever it is we want to do. Jesus is saying, we are to teach all of it. The parts we agree with and the parts we disagree with because Jesus is the son of God and we are not making disciples of us. We are making disciples for him. But not only to teach them, but notice to observe, which means to do. Oh man, that's terrible. I would much rather tell you to do what to do rather than to do it. Do what I say, not what I do. Jesus is saying we are to teach them so that they do what Jesus did. That we do what Jesus did. To know the scriptures and to do them. You see, it's not just good enough to know the scriptures. You can know and quote and see when you see in the football games, John 3, 16, you can quote that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's great to know it until you know it. And two of you observe it. Again, it's one thing to say, Lord, forgive me as I've forgiven others. Then refuse to forgive. We are to observe all. And we are to teach not for knowledge's sake, but to change people's identity become less like me and more like Jesus. So teaching them to observe all, that's without exception, that I have commanded you. So we're to do that. We're to teach, to observe what he's commanded. And then he says, and lo, I am with you always. So this means when you're going out and about, don't fly on a plane. Because that's high. And he says, low, I'm with you. No, that's not what he means. He means that he's always consistently with us. Low, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Which means he's talking about you and me. Because those 11 or those 500 or those 120, whoever many people were standing on the mountain, were not going to survive till the end of the age. So Jesus says, as long as you're doing what I told you to do, and the future generations that are come, who become disciples because you taught them to observe all that I have commanded, I will be with them. 
That's a pretty astounding promise. I will be with you. Didn't say sometimes. Didn't say when you feel like I'm with you. Because I am with you always. And I'll tell you when I stop being with you. It's even after the end of the age. So even after I've come back, I'm with you. No wonder so many people, if 49% of Christians don't know the Great Commission, and they probably don't know that Jesus is always with them, no wonder we're always based on feelings. Well, my, I feel like my prayers don't go further than the roof. Or I feel that I've been abandoned. Or I feel X or I feel Y. Jesus didn't say, I'll be with you while you're feeling it. Jesus says, I will always be with you. Even past the time that you need me to be with you. So, when we are going, he's with us. When we are baptizing all the nations, he's with us. When we are teaching them to observe all that he has commanded, he is with us. And he will always be with us. But pastor, I'm not really good at evangelizing. There are all kinds of courses and books to read and study. Read or study some of those. Let me tell you a very quick way to do it. I once was a sinner. I once was blind, but now I see. God in his mercy forgave me of all that I've ever done or ever will do. All that I've thought and all that I've done. And he continues to love me even the way I am. And this isn't just about me because he does the same thing for you. And I'm here to declare as a witness that he was raised from the dead, that he is with me, and he'll be with you. And I'm willing to walk on this journey with you, become his disciple. That was less than a paragraph. You can read a 600-page book if you want. Or you can just simply say, Jesus loves me. Let me tell you about how he loves you. And I'm willing to get out of my comfort zone. Because when I'm out of my comfort zone, he's there. When I'm in my comfort zone, he's there. Because he's always there with me. So whether you reject me or accept me, that's okay. Because Jesus is with me. Because it is not your job to save anyone. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's their job. Our job is to go make disciples. 
So as we're going to sing in a little bit, if that means to declare it on the rooftops, declare it on the rooftops. If that means to say, you know, I'm a little shy or bashful, so I'm going to ask a friend of mine to come to church with me, then you do that. Or you say, hey, what about starting a Bible study? We'll meet on, you know, Tuesday mornings at whatever, and we'll, we'll just read the Bible and discuss it. I don't know that much about it, but you and I will just get in and we'll read what it says. And we'll just read what it says. There are a whole lot of ways to evangelize the world. You don't have to necessarily go to Africa. You can go next door. You can talk to your friends at work or school, although that's getting harder because I know because in, in today's culture, if you share your faith, somehow now you're being harassing. But there's ways you can do it that are appropriate. But Jesus is not giving this assignment to his apostles. He's giving this assignment, this duty, this obligation, and yes, this commission, not only to them, but to you and to me. So as we are going throughout our lives, make disciples. And all God's people said, <laughs>